Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into right where we left off last week, and then hopefully even get to the stuff that we were supposed to look at this week. And so we'll see how it goes. But let's, let's ask for God's help as we start. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we get to gather and we get to learn. And as we learn about some matters having to do with history and with our identity and with where we fit in the the big story of church history, a story that you've been telling, and I ask, Father, that you'd help us to think well and you'd help us to engage well and that all of this, Father, would ultimately push us back to your word and push us back to you. And that as we we, um, learn more about where we fit in, in the big picture of, of history, I pray that you would help us to be more and more zealous to be people of the book. And I pray that that would have its effect on us this morning, Lord. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are uh, on week two of a six-week session here uh, called Who We Are. And what we're looking at is uh, us as a church, as, as Emmanuel Baptist Church, um, where we fit in, in church history and where we fit in, um, in, this, in, the, in the global body of, of, of Christianity. And, uh, and, and I'm not going to say a whole lot more about that because I think... I think what I mean by that is going to get um, more plain as we get to some of the material today. But where, where some of this uh, comes from, as I shared last week, is just the understanding that um, more and more our church is, uh, is um, composed of people who have not been around our church for a very long period of time, which is a wonderful thing. And what we want to do is make sure... Um, that as people are coming and are joining and getting involved, that, that we um, that we have a, that we have an un, a proper understanding of who we are and and uh, where we where we fit in the bigger family of, of Christianity. So um, again, if if that sounds confusing to you, hopefully it will get clearer as the as this week and as other weeks go on. About about half of this class is, is history because we're going to see history is really important, and uh, and and about the other half is going to be looking at ideas. And uh, today, depending on how uh, we do, we might get to a little bit of both. Last week, we looked at about 1,500 years of history uh, from the time of Christ up to the Reformation. And uh, trust me, I feel bad about how much we can't look at in a time like that. I would have loved to spend more time with certain characters from the, the early era. What was the era, era of the church fathers? Uh, from kind of the time of the apostles up until the 5th or 7th centuries, what, what do we call that era? The patristic era, p- patristic having to do with potter the, uh, and, and, and the word for father in, the, in Latin. And um, and we, we, there's, there's just some, some amazing heroes in that time. We're actually going to be touching a little bit more on that. Even, it's interesting, in, in the Middle Ages, or in, in the medieval time, last week we really emphasized the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, that's not the only story that can be told from that time. Okay, we could have talked about the Eastern Church, and, and yeah, some of, the, some of what, what we might consider goofy things that happened there, but also some of the good things. Again, some of the heroes that, that, that we would find there. 
And even within, even within the overall system of, of medieval Catholicism, uh, there were some really wonderful people who were serving the Lord and, and doing their best to love him and to live lives that, that, that were shaped by him. They were severely limited by what they were taught. They were limited by the fact that, they, that many of them couldn't read the Bible for themselves. And they were limited by the fact that, that the church uh, limited their access to the truth. Um, and, and yet, um, and yet there, there were some lives in there that we can learn from and, and, and people that, that we should know. So just so you know, we're touching on some of the key points. We're not touching on, like, not even close to a, a really thorough look at it. Um, one of the interesting things um, that happens in history is that the good guys kind of become... Um, Superheroes as time goes on. And so last week we talked a bunch about Martin Luther, who, who God used to really be kind of the lightning rod of the Reformation. Uh, Luther was far from a perfect man. Okay? If, uh, I'm not sure Luther would, would uh, be a part of our church if he were alive today. In fact, I can almost guarantee you he wouldn't be. Um, Luther had some very significant problems. People, many people today consider him to have had some form of mental illness, uh, which is not saying that he's not a good person because good people can have mental illnesses. I'm just talking about his his weakness, um, but even beyond that, he had some he had some really terrible ideas. Luther was very anti-Semitic. He he hated the Jews when they couldn't uh, when he couldn't convert them to Christianity. He absolutely hated them. Luther was incredibly crude. Okay, he he had a, a sense of humor that w- would rival the you know the worst toilet humor of anyone that that you would know. He was he was very rude. Theologically, he went a lot of places we wouldn't go. Um, for example, he really held tight to infant baptism. He held tight to an understanding of communion that, that was still very similar to the Catholic Church. Um, and, 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 but what's interesting is even Luther himself didn't get as far as he would have liked to. He wanted to really reform the church. And yet, because back then, and this is going to come up later on today and next week, the, the church and the state, the political state, were, were like this. The, the German princes actually had a huge say in the liturgy of the church. And so the Lutheran church today is not just the product of Luther's teaching and theology. It's, it, it is in large extent, but it also of the, it, it's, in a, it's shaped has been shaped by the by the political forces going on in, in, in Germany at that time, or what came to be known as Germany. Um, what's very interesting, and we'll come back to this, um, like I, I, I think we owe a lot to Luther and the Lutherans. I've, I've, I'm making friends with the uh, Lutheran pastor in town, uh, who's a, a, an ally on many important issues. And yet what's, what's very interesting is that modern-day conservative Lutherans um, they believe that what, what Luther and, and the people around him, um, what they wrote down in their statements of faith, they, re- they believe that that accurately represents the truth of Scripture. And, and so basically, they're not allowed to disagree with, with anything significant that Luther or the other guys said in those statements of faith, in those, in those doctrinal standards. Um, which I find kind of interesting because Luther's whole insistence was on Scripture alone, right? And, and that Scripture alone is the authority. And yet, functionally, for many of his followers, I think we could critique them. Now, they would say, no, 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 no. Scripture is our authority. We just believe that, you know, the Lutheran confessions are accurately teach Scripture. But I think functionally, those confessions can sort of 
replace scripture in, in, in authority. Um, but anyways, we want to, to we want to we want to move on. We want to not get too stuck here speaking about Lutheranism. We want to talk about how the Reformation spread. Uh, the, one of the key uh, other names when we think about the Reformation and the key reformers, people talk about Luther and who's the second person? Luther and Calvin, that's right. Uh, John Calvin was only eight years old in 1517. When Luther nailed the 95 Theses, he was, he was my son Asher's age. So that gives you a sense of, of their spread there. Cal- Calvin was a second generation reformer. And so what he did is he took kind of these raw, the, 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 the raw observations of, of, the, of the Reformation in its early stages, which was the church had become corrupt, we'd wandered from scripture, we'd wandered from salvation, and Calvin really took those and developed them very, um, very, uh, in, in just an, an, uh, a way that still challenges people's minds today. Calvin is a theologian that, that to the to the present day, uh, just just blows people's minds. When we think about Calvin, what's the theological view that we associate with him? goes without saying Calvinism, okay? Now, Calvin was a Calvinist in that sense that he believed that God was sovereign over all things, including human salvation. Uh, well, I don't have to say human salvation because I don't know what other kind of salvation there is, but that God is sovereign, sovereign over all things, including salvation. Many of those specific doctrines, like, for example, the five points of Calvinism, which we'll touch on today, they weren't clarified or referred to in that way until after, after Calvin, you know, generation or so or several generations after him. Nevertheless, in his, in his, do, in his doctrine, in his theology, he definitely believes strongly in, in the sovereignty of God over all things, including salvation, that God is sovereign over who is and who is not saved. Um, but, but Calvin, for, for him, was, it was a much of, a part of much, a much bigger project. Calvin was entranced with the majesty of God. When you read his writings, it's just so humbling as you, as you see a man who was just captivated with the majesty of God. And, and when he was in his 20s, in his 20s, when he produced the first edition of his massive landmark uh, work, which is called, anyone know what it's called? The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Two volumes published most of the time because uh, it's just too big of a book to have in, in one thing. Uh, he wrote it as a defense of the Christian faith. And, uh, and it's just, it's mind-blowing. He was just, he was an incredible theologian. To this day, even people who are not Calvinists, who don't agree with him, read him because he's amazing. Calvin, um, Calvin was a much better theologian than Martin Luther was. Okay, that's just that's just true. He just was a much more refined, much more careful, much more thoughtful theologian, and and really developed thing really developed things further. Now Calvin's works and, and Calvin's writings helped form a loose consensus among these different reforming groups around around Europe. Yet all these different reforming groups, everyone discovering things, and Cal- Calvin's writings had had quite an effect in in kind of giving meaning to this word. Reformed, reformed theology, the reformed churches. Uh, it was to this day when we say reformed, reformed theology, reformation theology. What we're ta- actually talking about more is, is Calvin's theology than, than Luther's theology. 
Um, and, and to this day, um, in the sort of the capital R Reformed churches, like the Dutch Reformed Church or um, some of the Presbyterian, conservative Presbyterian denominations, they follow Calvin's theology to this day quite, quite closely. Um, Calvin, one of his big things, and this is uh, one of the uh, elements of his life that I love and resonate with, is he was just really big into training pastors, into training, training missionaries. And, and it's interesting, I just said missionaries. There's this whole myth that from the time of the early church up until William Carey, that missions sort of disappeared. Okay, that's not true at all. The, the, the reformers uh, trained missionaries, but who were they missionaries to? They're missionaries to, to people who already consider themselves Christians. So, so Calvin, in his training school in Geneva, trained ministers to go out and preach the gospel to, to people who were Roman Catholics, who considered themselves Christians, but who actually didn't know what the Bible said and didn't know what the gospel was. Um, and lest we think, see, we sometimes also have this myth that the Reformation was all about just smart guys with these big ideas debating theology. Do you know the average life expectancy of a graduate from Calvin School of, of, of ministerial training? The average life expectancy, I think, was eight weeks. Okay? But his graduates joked that to, to have a diploma from Calvin School was basically a death certificate because the majority of them, I think 80% or so, within, within around eight weeks were burned to death by, by, the, by, the, by the Roman Catholic authorities. Um, and so these were people who were passionate about the truth and, and gave their lives to spread the truth of the gospel that they had recovered, that were, were saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And, and we'll get to some of those, those doctrines in a moment here. Um, so, so we're talking about some of the big kind of groups, big sort of families, you could say, within Reformation theology. There's Lutherans, there's, we could say, the Reformer, the Reformed theology, following more Calvin. Um, there's a third group that, that overlaps to a certain extent, and that's Anglicanism, Church of England. Um, Church of England has a super interesting history. We're not going to spend a lot of time with it. You could do a whole class on Church of England. It could do several classes on just the Church of England. Uh, the Church of England started because Henry VIII wanted a, a divorce. Uh, I forget which divorce it was that he wanted, he, or which wife he was on, I should say. He, you know, Henry VIII went through all kinds of wives. And he wanted a divorce, and the Pope wouldn't give him a divorce. Uh, and so he said, fine, I'll start my own church. And so that's what he did. He started the Church of England, uh, which at the beginning was basically just the Roman Catholic Church without the Pope. But there were opportunists, and there was a key guy whose name was Thomas Cranmer, and he saw this as an opportunity to, to bring Reformation theology to England. So Thomas Cranmer, who wrote the first edition of the, book, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, which actually is full of wonderful things. There's some awesome prayers in there. There's some, there's some like Anglican liturgy at, it, at its root, if you go back, has just some beautiful gospel-centered just wonderful stuff that's just so good for the soul. And a lot of that came from, from Thomas Cranmer and guys like him who, who saw, so you have Henry VIII separating for really sinful reasons, and yet they saw that as an opportunity to, to reform the Church of England, to bring it in line with the good stuff that was happening in the Reformation. And I'm not going to go into all the detail except to say if you know about anything about English history over those next decades and centuries, you know it was a mess because you would have kings dying and you'd have a Protestant 
ruler die, and the next would be a Catholic ruler. And so then they would swing the church back this way. And then they would die, and you'd swing the church back this way. And then you had a whole period where there was no king. And you just had the parliament. And then they were really pushing Protestant ideas. And then you had Bloody Mary. And you, it, it was just, it was a total mess. And that helps explain why the Anglican church today is really hard to pin down and define. So when you think of the Anglican church, some of you probably have all different ideas. There are some Anglican churches that are basically the Catholic Church without the Pope, okay? And they're referred to as Anglo-Catholics. And and very deliberately, they believe in all the Catholic doctrines, transubstantiation, they work hard to get back in alignment with Rome. And and basically, they're they're Roman Catholic churches without without Rome. Um, You have all the way down to um, the Anglican Diocese of Sydney, Australia, which is incredibly evangelical. Okay, so you know here, we sing a bunch of songs from City of Light. Okay, th- those are Sydney Anglicans. All the, uh, the Matthias Media guys, so we use Matthias Media here for like the stuff we're using with our men's Bible study, and we've used some of their stuff, uh, like um, the Where To Lord class that we did here, uh, Two Ways to Live, some of you are familiar with. I, I love Matthias Media. Those are Sydney Anglicans. They're, like th- Some of the guys there in Sydney are are, are Anglican Baptists, literally. They're like I, I could probably go to their churches. They basically, I've heard they like they feel like our services here with just a bit more formal confession of sin, and that's it. So you can see there's this massive spread in Anglicanism, and then on top of that, today you've got the liberal Anglicans who are you know ordaining anybody with two legs, and I'm not sure even if that's going to be a standard for too long. So um, you've got um, you've you've got some this massive spread which has to do with the history. But, um, yeah, just know, as, as you guys know, or as you guys think about, about people with, um, who, who's, who say they're Anglican, um, don't assume much just from that. You need to know, like, okay, what kind? But at its core, at its root, the Church of England, doctrinally, from a very early time, was Reformed theology. If you look at the 39 articles, if you look at the Book of Common Prayer, it's Reformed theology. And it's a lot of it's just beautiful gospel-centered stuff. Unfortunately, it also has the trappings of a state church, which is a, a theme that kind of comes up again and again here, right? In, in Germany, the, the Lutheran church was the state church under the, the thumb of the government. In, in England, the Anglican Church, under the thumb of, of, the, of, the, of the English government, the English monarchy. And um, today, just, this, just in, in, in these past weeks, global Anglicanism has had a big schism over, over the issue of homosexuality. And so not all of these Anglican bodies are in fellowship with the Church of England anymore. They're Anglican in their theology and practice, but they've actually broken fellowship with the Church of England. So anyways, just wanted wanted to touch on that because actually our Baptist movement kind of comes out of that. But let's talk for just a little bit here about the theology of the Reformation. What were some of the key doctrines? Uh, Luther really clarified two two key doctrines. Now, some would say that I'm being simplistic, and I am for the sake of time. Um, one had to do with justification by faith alone. What does it mean to be justified? We've talked about it here in recent weeks, right? Uh, from, from Genesis 15. What does it mean to be justified? Anyone want to give a warrant, a, a definition or not? Be declared righteous. Declared or counted righteous. 
I like the idea of being counted righteous because I think that's that's language that kind of pushes us into the into biblical uh, concepts. Um, and 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 so Luther pressed into this idea that we are justified, we're counted righteous by grace through faith, by grace and through faith, but not just by grace and through faith, but by grace alone through faith alone. And it's that, that word alone that's really important. Okay, so some people will say that the Catholic Church taught and teaches that we're saved by works. Okay, that's, that's slander. That's not actually true. The Catholic Church believes and teaches that we're saved by grace through faith. Is that a surprise to anybody? Okay, but let me define this, okay? Because this is where the words become very careful, become very important. The, the, the Catholic Church, in its official doc, doctrine and dogma, teaches that the grace of justification is first given to us at what point? Baptism. At the, at the moment of baptism is when the grace of justification is given to someone. And so Protestants would say, well, that's kind of a work, right? Something someone did. Okay? But it, it goes beyond that. The, the Catholic Church teaches that the grace that, that, that justifies and that saves is a grace that needs to, okay, we're going to get really technical here for a moment, but this is important. It is a grace that needs to inherit in us. In other words, it becomes ours. It's by grace. God gives it to us by grace. But it must become ours. And on that basis of it being ours, of us actually becoming righteous, we are, we are justified. Now, I'm, I'm shortening it. There's all, if you actually look at the whole Catholic, Roman Catholic doctrine of salvation, it's actually quite complicated. Because they believe that you, it, by, there's different types of sins, but that there are mortal sins, that if you, you maybe have heard that phrase, oh, it's a mortal sin. A mortal sin in Catholic theology means that you've lost your salvation, you've lost justification. This is really where the works come in, okay? This is where Luther really reacted, is that um, at that point, you have to do works of, of penance, and there's another phrase that's, that I didn't put in my notes, it's slipping my mind, but there are, are works that you have to do at that point, um, and, 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 and a process you have to undergo to regain the grace of justification. And at the end of the day, it is a grace and, and, a, and, a, and a, a, a grace and a righteousness that has to inherit in you. So I'm simplifying things here, but if we zoom out, the Catholic, the Catholic doctrine would say, yeah, faith, absolutely. You need faith, grace from God, absolutely. No, this is not about you just earning your own salvation. But at the end of the day, we will be saved and we will be in heaven with God according to Catholic doctrine because we ourselves have become righteous people. Okay. And that's what purgatory factors in so big. You can't go into heaven like that. You need to go to purgatory where the last remnants of your sin are purged in this awful fire and, and, then, and then you're finally ready for heaven. Okay. Luther understood that we are justified, according to scripture, not by becoming righteous ourselves, whether God's grace is a part of it or not, but rather we are justified by faith by, by, let me start with the word grace. By grace alone, through faith alone. That it's not grace plus, it's not 
work faith plus. It's not faith plus baptism. Faith plus works of merit. Faith plus um, penance. It's not grace plus my effort. Grace plus my parents choosing to baptize me. Grace plus me not committing a mortal sin. It's faith alone by grace alone. And why? What's that? Now, some of what I'm doing here goes a little bit beyond what Luther developed, and I'm getting into what Calvin and the other reformers developed here. What's the basis for God declaring us righteous if it's not us ourselves becoming righteous? What is the the ground of our justification if it's not me being a righteous person? How can God declare me righteous if I myself am not actually righteous, which is in the Roman Catholic system? And the answer is Christ. And so that's why in the Reformation Reformation theology, it's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this this was Luther and Calvin and the others' core understanding, is that Jesus is our righteousness. That Jesus was perfectly righteous. He did. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He never sinned. He he is the blameless, spotless one, and that we are counted righteous in Christ or for Christ's sake. That and, and and the word that we can use there is imputation. That the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, which is different than saying that it must inherit in us. Let me again try define this here. This is so important. It's, well, we talked about it a few Sundays ago, okay? It's, it's that idea of being united to Jesus such that his righteousness counts for ours, even though we ourselves aren't actually righteous. But what Jesus did, his righteousness, gets, we are counted righteous in him because we're united to him. It's, it, his righteousness is credited to our account. And so there's this phrase that comes up in, 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 in Reformed theology of, of the alien righteousness of Christ. Now when you hear that, don't think space aliens. But think of it this way. If, if you are justified today, which if, if you've believed in Christ and, and have trusted in him and are saved, you are, ju- you are justified. Okay, So I'm, I'm on a mission here to get that word back in your vocabulary because it's in the Bible and it's really important. God has counted you righteous, not because you are righteous, but because Jesus was righteous for you. And so the righteousness by which you are justified is not in you, it's out there, it's in Jesus. So that's where we talk about the alien righteousness, right? It's not a righteousness that has stuck to me, it's a righteousness out there in Jesus. Now, does that mean that we don't have to be ourselves righteous? Of course not. And, and uh, the, the reformers were fond of saying, we're justified by faith alone, not by a faith that is alone. Okay? So the faith that justifies, the faith that, that looks to Jesus and says, Jesus, I have no hope of, of being justified on my own merits or anything I've done. I'm looking to you to be righteous for me, like Paul says, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And, and, and to look to, away from ourselves to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm trusting that you are righteous for me and I'm in you. I'm, I'm united to you. And so I'm righteous. By, by that status. The faith that does that is a faith that, pro- that will produce good works. Okay? It's, that's, that, that faith that looks to Jesus is not going to go, thanks for saving me, and I'm going to go do whatever I want. It just doesn't work that way. And the book of Romans explains that. The whole New Testament explains that. But, so it's not a faith that is alone. But, but, the, but what justifies us is faith. Okay? So we've got to get this, guys. This is the heart of the Reformation here. 
The faith that justifies produces good works. But we are justified not because of those good works, but because of the, because of the faith that justifies, because it's, it's Christ who's enough for us. So we're justified by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to what alone? According to the scriptures alone. So notice it's these words alone. Uh, because the Catholics would say that, that it's not, the Roman Catholic theology, I should say, says that it's not just Christ, it's Christ and Mary and the saints who who's, have this uh, treasury of merit in heaven and, 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 and through which we can become more righteous. And, and, and the reformers following scripture say, no, it's Christ alone. And we just got to the fourth one there, which is scripture alone. Um, the, the reformers understood that scripture alone is our authority. That scripture alone is God's word. That councils and popes can disagree with each other. And so it's interesting, um, the Eastern Orthodox Church, Luther actually tried to reconcile with the Eastern Orthodox Church because he would have loved a political ally against Rome. So he tried. They sent emissaries to, to, uh, to the East and tried to, tried to connect. And where they parted ways was actually over justification here. Because the Eastern Orthodox idea is, is less precise, but it's more along this idea that we actually become righteous, as opposed to Jesus being righteous for us. Um, but uh, one of the other things is the Eastern Orthodox Church believes that, that it's not Scripture alone, but it's Scripture and tradition that, that are, are, is authoritative for us. Now, the Eastern Orthodox Church picks a spot in history, the early, like the church fathers, and says, that's all the tradition that, that we need. Catholic, the Catholic theology believes that that tradition grows and matures, and that new councils, new statements from the Pope, you know, in, in, I think it was only in the 1800s that, that uh, the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary was, was clarified. Um, that Mary stayed a virgin through her whole life. That was only in the 1800s. Roman Catholics have no problem with that idea. Um, and and I, I, I'm, again, I'm pulling that out of my memory bank, and I could be wrong, but it was in the 1800s that some key do- uh, another key doctrine, or it was very recently, for example, the idea that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra from the church, that he's infallible. That's, that's, that's also a relatively new doctrine. Um, that might be the 1800s one. You can go look it up. Um, but, the, but we would say, what? You guys are like inventing these new doctrines? And the Roman Catholics would have no problem with that because uh, they believe that scripture and tradition together are, are God's authoritative way of speaking to his people and tradition's always growing, always developing. Okay? And, and the, the reformers said, look, your traditions disagree with each other. Your, your councils are constantly correcting each other. Your popes disagree. And, and God, in his word, has said that you know, all scripture is sufficient. Uh, all scripture is God-breathed and sufficient for, for, for that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. So, so this idea of scripture alone being our, um, being our, our key um, authority. Uh, and and then what's the, so we've we've talking about these four alones right salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone according to the Scripture alone and there's this there's this fifth one for the glory of God alone and that was this key this key rallying cry again big one for Calvin uh, God's Majesty God's glory and their contention was that the the, the Catholic system by splitting up. Um, by, 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 by arranging this whole system of authority and doctrine with popes and saints and Mary and everything, ultimately, ultimately it robbed God of his glory. 
And so what motivated and what drove them was this zeal and passion that God would be glorified, that God alone would get the glory for salvation, that because salvation belongs to our God. Just think about that. Think about that's the praise in Revelation, right? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And, and it's, it's to the Lord that salvation belongs. It belongs to the Lord, uh, not to the Lord and Mary and the saints and the Pope and etc. So those are, those are often called the five solas of the Reformation because in Latin, uh, the word sola is, is, is the word for alone and, and they're often s- stated that way. So sola, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, and soli deo gloria. Those are the, the, the Latin phrases for, for these five kind of core doctrines of the Reformation. Now, there's a lot more. Uh, Calvin really was one of the guys that, that engineered covenant theology, which we're not going to talk about a whole lot here, uh, except to say that it's wrong. Okay, that was, that was kind of supposed to make you laugh. But um, anyways, uh, co- co- we talk a lot about covenants because the Bible talks a lot about covenants, but covenant theology is this idea that the covenant that God started with Abraham which, which we're actually are just getting to um, in, in Genesis 17 today, is one big covenant, and that the new covenant is not a really so much a new covenant as much as just a different way of doing things uh, within this covenant of grace that God did with Abraham. So that's why the reformers all, almost all, the, all practiced infant baptism. Why do they practice infant baptism? Well, in the, old, in the covenant with Abraham, he had to circumcise his kids, and they were part of the covenant. And we're basically in the same thing. It's just, it's, it's, it's gotten a little bit more clear with Jesus, but we're basically in the same covenant. So our, the only thing that's changed is we do baptism instead of circumcision. So they circumcise their kids, we should baptize our kids, okay? So covenant theology, that, that, that this is one of the things, one of the areas I think Calvin is really mistaken. Covenant theology emphasizes lots of continuity between the old covenant, particularly we could say the covenant with Abraham, and the new covenant in Christ. They, they would say, no, those are not two different covenants. Uh, there's just lots of continuity. And so um, that's, that's one of the... Um, one, one of the hallmarks of, of, of what we could say capital R reform theology is, is covenant theology. Um, one of the other kind of key things that we touched on before in terms of Reformation theology has to do with this idea of Calvinism. So today when you talk about being reformed, it can mean different things. Some people take that to mean you believe in covenant theology. Uh, and, and some people... Um, very often understand reformed as a shorthand for you believe in predestination. You believe in in the five points of Calvinism. So the five points of Calvinism came out actually in the 1600s in a council that happened in the town of Dort in the the Netherlands. Um, And it was actually in response. The the Arminians came up with their stuff first. Jacobus Arminius um, came up with a bunch of, of complaints against what he understood Reformed theology to be teaching. And so the Reformers that gathered, and, and there were representatives from all different churches. It wasn't just Dutch people that were there. I, be, I believe there were actually representatives from the Church of England there. And they gathered, and they clarified their doctrine. And so th- that's where the five points of Calvinism come from. Really, the Armenians came up with the five points first. And, and the Calvinists said, okay, well, here's five places where we disagree with you. So the the... 
the, at the Council of Dort, uh, they said, we believe in, in total depravity, which, which doesn't mean that everyone is as bad as they can get. It just means that everything we do apart from Christ has some measure of sin in it. Okay, that's, that, that's the way to understand that. So total depravity doesn't mean everybody's a Hitler. Total depravity means, well, we all could be a Hitler, but everything we do is, is, fla- is flavored by sin. Our, our, our depravity affects everything we do. They, say, they believed in uh, unconditional election. By that, they believe that God chooses people and they are saved. It's not that God looks through the hall of times and sees, oh, they're going to believe in me, so then I'll choose them. Rather, God chooses people and those are the people who are saved. So that's the idea of it being unconditional. It, it's just it's God's choice. Uh, they believed in, in what, what I, I think is more accurate to call definite atonement. Some of you may have heard this idea of limited atonement, uh, which we all kind of, when you hear about limited atonement, you're like, ugh, like limiting the atonement. I think it's better to understand as definite atonement. The idea here, coming out of passages like, uh, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, who gave himself up for her. Or Jesus who said, the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Okay. So, so this idea of definite atonement is that when Jesus died on the cross, he did not just die in a general way to create the possibility of being saved, but rather that when Jesus died on the cross, he actually saved specific people, the elect that he had chosen, that he died in their place to save them, that his death on the cross was effective. It didn't just create a possibility of salvation, it actually saved people. So that, that's, what, that's, what they, uh, that's what they believe. Now, many of the reformers would still say that, that there is a sense in which Jesus' death is sufficient for the whole world. Okay? So they're not limiting it in that sense. They're not saying it's not good enough. They would still say anyone who believes will, could be saved. I mean, there's, because of the un, unlimited worth of what Jesus did, Nevertheless, that he died with a specific intent to save a specific people. Uh, they would point to, again, passages like in Revelation 5 that talk about uh, worthy is the lamb who was, uh, who was slain. Uh, by your blood, you redeemed men for God. So he actually did something with his blood. He actually bought men for God, that there's a definiteness to the atonement. Uh, the, fit, the fourth uh, doctrine that was clarified there is, the, is what we call irresistible grace. And it's this idea that when, when God puts forth his grace to save someone, he's going to save them. They, they, can't, they can't say no. Not that he's saving them against their will, but rather that he is saving their very will itself. So they want to be saved. They, like, they come to Jesus. The, the best way to understand the Reformed doctrine of irresistible grace is, is to think of it like a resurrection. And this comes from Ephesians 2, where Jesus called Lazarus forth. He said, Lazarus, come forth. Um, Lazarus came forth because he was dead and now he was alive. And, and, and that God's grace transforms us from being dead to, 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 to alive, raises us up with Christ, and, and so we respond to it. And so there's that effective call that, that accomplishes what, it, what it's designed to accomplish. And then the final in, these, in these, five, these five doctrines they clarified is the perseverance of the saints. 
Now, this is a little different from, from an idea that's been more popular in some Baptist circles in the last hundred years or so, um, which is, is uh, maybe beyond hundred years, but this idea of once saved, always saved. Okay? So once saved, always saved basically says that if you, in, at one point in your life, you prayed the sinner's prayer, that basically you're good, you're going to be in heaven, and no matter what you do the rest of your life, you're going to be in heaven because you prayed the sinner's prayer. Okay, that's, that's once saved, always saved. Perseverance of the saints, the Reformed doctrine, is a little bit different. And what it says is that someone who has been born again, genuinely converted, will persevere in their faith. And persevere means they will press on. They will believe. They will live holy lives. They might stumble and slip here and there like Abram did, like Peter did. But they're going to get back up, dust themselves off, and they will persevere to the end. And, and so those are, the five, those are the five doctrines. So when we talk today about being reformed, uh, often what, what, what we're talking about is a belief in those five doctrines. Now, um, I believe, now some of you might, might be surprised by this, some of you might not be surprised by this. I believe those five doctrines are an accurate representation of what, of what we see in Scripture. Um, I don't think that those five doctrines are meant to be a club that we use to beat people over the heads with, as, as some people who believe them do. Nor do I believe that there's no tension. In it, because I think some of you right now might be hearing this, and you're like, yeah, well, what about whosoever believes in the name of the Lord might be saved? Or what about God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked? Or what? And, and I think, yes, there, there is mystery and tension in, in the way that we understand and live out some of these things. And so I don't believe that these five doctrines are also... Um, you know, a 10-foot brush that we just paint over every little difficulty with. Um, and many of the reformers, uh, most of the ref- genuine reformers, believed in the genuine offer of the gospel. Which is to say, we can say to everyone and anyone, would you believe in Jesus today? Would you come and believe in him? Because if you did, you'd be saved. That's a genuine offer we can make to everybody. We're just saying in the counsels of God in a way that we don't understand, the ones who respond are the ones whom God chose. Acts 13, 47. Paul preaches the gospel to a group of people. And, and, and Luke says, and those who were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, I think you also can maybe tell this if you've been around for a while and listened to my preaching, is that I want, I, I, I desire that our church would be a church that um, is okay for us to have discussion and dialogue about these particular five doctrines that I've just talked about. And, and so it's not like uh, these are the hammer that we use to, squ- to hit everyone with as they come in. Uh, if you disagree with any of these five doctrines and you've got good biblical reasons for doing so, that's great. Let's dig into the Word together and let's, let's try to understand God's Word better together. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that now. Really here, I'm not so much talking about EBC, though, at this point. Uh, I've just showed you a little bit of what I believe in and why I believe this is a biblical legacy. But this is the doctrine of the Reformation, largely. Okay? Now, again, you had people like the Armenian remonstrants who didn't, didn't agree with that. Um, and so, and so uh, I think... I, and I think of, of some modern-day guys. I was just reading something by Fred Sanders. Uh, some of you might have read Fred, some of Fred Sanders' stuff in Bible school. I mean, just a guy with such a reverence for God, such a fear of the Lord. And uh, he doesn't agree with these five points of Calvinism, and he, he, he has reasons for that. And I would love to be in the same church as Fred Sanders. You know, So, so I, think, I think we can hear that um, 
there's a doctrine, and then there's what you do with the doctrine that, 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 that are really important. Um, so after the death of kind of the first and second generation reformers, one of, the, one of the great things the Reformation left us was a great legacy. And we're going to end here on this thought, and it's going to be next week that we get to the Baptist movement. Um, but one of the great legacies the, the reformers left us was a legacy of doctrines and creeds and confessions. I should say theology, and, and, and particularly in the forms of creeds and confessions. Some of these came really early. The Belgic Confession, 1561. The Heidelberg Catechism, 1563, okay? Just like not even 50 years after, after Luther nailed, nailed the 95 Theses, and you've got the Heidelberg Catechism. If you have not read the Heidelberg Catechism, you really need to. We might use a version of it in, our, in, in future stuff here that we do here. It is so, I can't read, I can, I can hardly think about the first statement in the Heidelberg Catechism without, without tearing up. It is so warm-hearted and beautiful in the way it applies the gospel to our lives. And so I think as we recognize this, we need to recognize it, what, the Reformation wasn't just a Reformation. It was a revival. God was warming hearts and bringing the truth of the gospel to people's hearts who had been so, for so many years, locked up in, in, uh, in, in fear and unbelief. It was just, just wonderful. Uh, Dortrecht, or the Council of Dort, which we just talked about, early 1600s. And then by 1646... We have the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was this massive statement that brought together a lot of these different reforming groups in England and became the standards used all around the world for reformed churches. And um, one of the things that we should see is that the, the, the reformers, so a couple of quick thoughts as we tie up here. The reformers didn't really think at the beginning that they were doing anything new. This is important. So I, I, I have not read through all of the institutes, but a few years ago, me and a friend started reading through Calvin's institutes together, and it blew my mind how often he quotes from, who do you think? Church Fathers. He quotes from Augustine all the time, uh, who, who lived in the, in, in the 5th century, in the 400s. Um, it's just incredible how, how the Reformers really understood they weren't inventing a new form of Christianity. Rather, the medieval Catholic structure had, 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 um, had corrupted the pure Christianity that had been believed and followed from the time of the apostles for, for hundreds of years after that. And so that's where this, this idea that they were reforming, they weren't making a new church. They weren't, go, they weren't starting from scratch. They were going back to the basics. And so sometimes a Catholic apologist uh, might say, do you really think there was no church for 1,500 years? You know, until the Reformation, it was like the Apostle Paul and Martin Luther. We don't think that at all. We are heirs of the early church and, and even faithful Christians throughout all of those 1,500 years. And the Reformers understood the same thing. Okay, so that's, that, that, that's really important. Um, I'm going to end here with, with a quick thought. We're one minute over time. Give me, give me one minute to, to quickly say something important here, as we, as, and then we'll get back to this next week. The Reformation was not a golden era. In fact, one of the lessons you learn as you study history, there is never a golden era. There's no golden era. And one of the problems of, of, of some people today who've recovered the theology of the Reformation is to be like, that, that was it. That was the golden era. We've got to be like that. And, and, and that becomes sort of their focus. And that comes in, in that shows up in one, in one form is guys who will pick some of these statements of faith. Like, for example, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And say, that's a perfect summary of the biblical truth. And you can't disagree with it. 
Okay, so like in Presbyterian churches today, uh, confessional Presbyterian churches, you have to agree with the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you, like, if Kevin DeYoung has to agree with the Westminster Confession of Faith or else he wouldn't have a job. Okay, now... There's two extremes we can make with that. Because on the other extreme, in the Baptist tradition that I'm a part of, I know many of my fellow Baptist pastors who have no idea what the Westminster Confession even says. And they are constantly, as a result, reinventing the wheel. They come to problems or, or, or thorny issues, and they go, I wonder what we should think about that. And it's kind of like, well, guys, you know, like some really godly, gifted, smart people have done a lot of thinking about that. Why don't we start by talking to them? You know, they died a few hundred years ago, but they left us this great doc. They left us a great document called the Westminster Confession of Faith. Let's listen to it for a bit. Let's talk to it. And let's, let's include them in the conversation. Okay? So I would argue that we must be conversant with the theology of the Reformation. But that's different than saying Reformation was a golden era we're going to stay frozen in time with whatever they believed because if it was good enough for the Westminster Confession, it was good enough for me. You see how that's the opposite mistake of not caring what those guys thought. And so I think you're going to see that as we go forward in the next couple of weeks. We need to be conversant with the early church. We need to be conversant with the fathers. We need to be conversant with the Reformation. We need to, by conversant, I'm talking about we're talking to them. We're conversing with them. We're a part of the same big family. But it's not like we're saying that was the golden era and you can't ever disagree with them. Guys, that's it uh, for today. Didn't get to half of what I thought we would. So uh, we'll see you back here next week. And uh, please send me your questions. I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear your questions. Okay, thanks everyone.